Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another fantastic episode of The Imposter. That's right, the podcast dedicated to making science more fun and engaging and, damn it, more enjoyable for you, the audience. Now, I will just say that's not to insinuate in any degree that science isn't enjoyable. For some of us, it's very enjoyable. However, this podcast is it's trying to get the people that might not find it as enjoyable to hop on board the fun ship when it comes to science. So for those of you that are already on board, you can just come along for the ride. So today we've got a really great show for you. Again, I'm probably biased, but in, in all honesty, it really is a very fascinating show. We're talking with Dean McEwen, who, along with myself, uh, Roe Allen and Duncan Morton, who were both previous guests on this show, and 23 other brilliant scientists, we all did a master's degree at Plymouth University last year. Now, Dean's master's dissertation was all about kelp viruses, and he's continuing that work into his PhD, which he's currently doing at Plymouth University, and in partnership with the Marine Biological Association. Shout out to the MBA. Now, if anybody can make kelp sexy, it is Dean. And I don't use the word kelp and sexy in the same sentence often. So, mind you, he really makes it pop. Now, I'm saying that, but I also have other testimonials. We were at a conference last spring in Belfast, and Dean won for best presentation because he really does know not only how to present well, but he knows how to make kelp fascinating, and he does it perfectly. I had a great time doing this episode, as I always do, but, you know, Dean's a great guy. Uh, so, yeah, I hope you enjoy this uh, this here upcoming episode. Uh, you know what? I know you will, because it's just it was just so, so interesting. All right, folks. Enough of me talking as much as I love to do it. Let's just let's just start this frickin' show. You know what I'm saying? Let's do it right now. We live in an age based on science and technology with formidable technological powers. And if we don't understand it, by we I mean the general public, if it's something that, oh, I'm not good at that, I don't know anything about it, then who is making all the decisions about science and technology that uh, are going to determine what kind of future our children live in? We've really got to start at the earliest levels with having a broader view of what education really can and should be. Because I find that with the young people we have, we are able to motivate them. Science is all around us. It's in us. Knowledge of science is power. It gives you an understanding of the forces of nature. It's not even about how much science you know. It's about how science literate you are. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Imposter Podcast. Today, we've got ourselves a treat, a real treat. We are joined by the lovely, voluptuous, and very brilliant Dean McEwen. Dean, how are you doing today, sir? Uh, apparently, I'm voluptuous. Uh, you're, very good. You're always voluptuous. I, I don't think you should feel so surprised about that. Uh, it comes and goes. Oh, it definitely does. <laughs> um, so, Dean and I met uh, in 2014, funny enough. Uh, he also did the MRES, the uh, the Masters in Marine Biology, Masters in Research, I should, I should say, should say. 
down in Plymouth University, where Dean is still currently located. Dean, why don't you tell us what you're still doing in Plymouth? Well, I'm continuing as a PhD student on the same project that I did for my master's. And, and what exactly did you do with your master's project, and or did it lead to any kind of superhero, I don't know, ideas? Such as um, Keltman or something of that random suggestion? Well, who told you about <laughs> my comic book that's in the works? <laughs> <laughs> Graphic novel, please. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so I was tasked with basically seeing if there's a virus that infects kelp, which was before that not known. And correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, was there or is there a... Are, are viruses in the marine environment fairly common? Is this a new field of study that people are now discovering? They are now known to be the most numerous biological life, well, life form on the planet. The most right. numerous life form on the planet, you the just said. The most numerous. Wow. And if you... So in a milliliter of seawater, there are between a million and a billion viruses. Okay, just, so just in case that came over fuzzy for people, uh, by the way, Dean is joining us on the phone from Plymouth, so that's why it might sound a bit fuzzy. But you said in one milliliter, there's between a million and a billion viruses? Yes. <clears throat> wow. Uh, definitely going to think twice before I swallow seawater now. All right, so, you, so Dean... Can you talk a little bit, we'll start from the beginning. So for your master's project, really, I mean, I know you said you were looking at kelp viruses, but can you give us a bit more of an explanation and really what the impact is? I mean, is this a big deal that you're working on this? So before, before we started to work on the kelp viruses, the only seaweed viruses that were known are a group called the phaeoviruses. Can you say can you the, can you say that again? What what kind of, what is the virus called? The Fayo viruses. Fayo viruses. All right, we'll put a link to that in the blog. The viruses of of brine algae. Okay. And they belong in the giant viruses, the group called Megavirales, which are these viruses which are at least ten times larger than the typical viruses, the ones that would give you cold or kill plants. Ah, I see. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming you're doing, you know, quite, quite a lot of work in a microscope because you're working oh, on viruses. Yes. Actually, if I close my eyes right now, I could still see viruses burned <laughs> in my retina. <laughs> so... Uh, is this because when you do do the microscopy, you're working in, in a fairly dark room, would you say? Well, you're in a, yes, and you're just, you're staring at this, this single moving image for hours. So... Just searching, searching for little hexagons, which is what the viruses look like. <laughs> Talk about workers' comp, am I right? <laughs> um, so... So what what did you find then in the end? Did you find your your notorious kelp virus? So in the end, we find a gene from the virus in three species of kelp, 
And in those same kelp, we got images of deformed reproductive structures, which were full of um, DNA, which we believe to be the DNA of virus particles, which have built up inside these particles and that waiting to be released at the same time as the reproductive spores of the kelp so they can infect the next generation. Okay, so that's an interesting point you're bringing up, actually. So what do, what are you looking for when you're looking in the microscope? How do you know if a kelp is infected? Well, based on the work of on the, the, pre, the, other, the known viruses which infect ectocarpoids, sure. we know that what happens is the virus waits till the host reproduces, and then it reprograms the reproduction, and it tells the certain cells to make viruses instead of spores. So you get these enormous structures that are just full of virus particles, and there's no cellular um, structure left. It's just all virus. So if you use certain stains, which will stick to the virus and make it appear blue or whatever color of your choosing, you can actually look for them down the microscope. Oh, wow. So so you're saying in the beginning the virus lies dormant until the kelp reproduces. Yes. And the virus gets there. So you have the, the particle, which is the little hexagonal capsule with DNA in it. And it comes in contact with the spore, which is just a single cell of the kelp swimming in the seawater. And it inserts its DNA into the DNA of the kelp spore. And then the kelp spore just continues as it does and grows into a, an adult seaweed, but nothing happens. All that happens is the kelp genome is copied into every cell, but with that, the virus genome sneaks in, but it just lies dormant and waits until the kelp starts to reproduce. That's... And that's when it switches on the virus genome and it produces virus particles, which are then released in at the same time as the next generation of spores so that the virus can get into the next generation of seaweed. So it doesn't really have that much of an energetic impact until reproduction? I mean, does it really, it doesn't really do much aside from just pass the virus on, it seems. Well, the assumption is it doesn't do much, but we only know it's doing something when we see really obvious symptoms like a big deformed reproductive structure. Right. So it's unlikely that nothing is happening. There might be some sort of warfare happening between the virus and the host sure. at the level of the genetic material that we can't see. So do you mean that, or is it is it possible that the kelp virus, even though the virus is lying dormant, that the kelp itself might be trying to attack it and thus maybe spending some energy attacking the virus constantly? Possibly. There might be sort of... I don't know. It hasn't been looked at. That's right, the sure. assumption. Is it, right. I think a good point to make is how unstudied this group is, hmm. even the ones that are known, it's really just a big don't know for a lot of questions. Really? But yeah. If you want to talk about what it might have an impact on the kelp, so 
there are studies that have shown that the viruses that we know in seaweeds, they infect seaweeds called ectocarpoids, which are small, sort of filamentous things that grow all over shores. Ectocarpoids. Um, well studied. Mm-hmm. Ecto, ectocarpoids. Ectocarpoids. Right. And in the ectocarpoids, when the virus is present, it can actually inhibit or improve photosynthesis depending on the species and the temperature. Oh, wow. That is pretty cool stuff, actually. That's very cool. It really is just, we have no idea what these viruses are doing. And all of these studies that of the ectocarpoids are at least 10 years old. Hmm. So, you mean the first study of the ectocarpoids are about 10 years old? All of the most recent ones are, you know, late 90s, if that. Wow. So it is it's very, it's very recent. That this was discovered. It's not a very popular. Yes, it's not. It doesn't draw much <laughs> attention. <laughs> you're not. You're not grabbing but, many um, people. <laughs> what a more obvious impact is just the simple replacement of well, replacement of algal spores with kelp viruses. Sure. Kelp, yeah. So the kelp's reproductive output is reduced by the presence of the virus. I see, and. Uh, I, I have to ask, uh, on the topic of impacts, though it's not the most popular delicacy, I know you and me both, from you know personal experience, have uh, munched on uh, on our fair share of, of seaweed. Do we know, it doesn't seem like this would be something that would impact human health if it was consumed. If it's, th- if it's, this, if it's this common, have you eaten any of your samples? Well, I've eaten enough to probably eaten the virus. <laughs> and I seem all right. I'm fine. But no, the, these viruses are very specific to their hosts. You know, they have certain receptors and types of infection that just wouldn't make sense in a human. Of course, of course. They, they evolve sort of, you know, it's kind of like a, it's a partnership really between a virus and a host just... At some point, the virus kills the host a bit. <laughs> That's how I think of it, but it's in the virus's interest to keep the host alive, alive. so that there's more hosts to infect. Right. That's an interesting point to raise, what the relationship is. Is it parasitic? Is it symbiotic? Uh, is it mm. is it a bit of both, you know? Um, mm. and, and the, Sorry, go on. The, yeah. line, the line between... The line between the symbiosis and parasitism can be very thin. Hmm. You know, all it takes, all it takes is a symbiote, a symbiote which is a, a a partner that benefits a host, like a microbe. All it takes is for it to take more than it's giving to the host, and then it becomes parasites. Um, so, so this research you did in the in the in the MRES, in the Masters. You're now continuing into your PhD. Yes, uh, the same question, just what are these kelp viruses? What do they do? Who are they? And so on. <laughs> Who are they? Are you, are you also, I mean, kind of going in the phylogeny? Are you trying to see how old they are, where they're, what their line is, where they're coming from, where they've been? Is that, is that any, any question of interest? A later thing we will try to do is to get genome sequences for some of these viruses 
which will allow us to figure out where they belong on the tree of life. But the problem with viruses is they evolve faster than cellular life. So the estimates are about a million times faster in terms of the number of um, DNA bases that change per year. Wow. So what this means is if you go back so far for a virus, you can get a very detailed picture of their evolution, maybe a few million years. Hmm. But if you go beyond that, the rapid evolution of viruses just overwrites all the older stuff. So it really becomes unclear of what happened in the deep time of evolution. But viruses, it's particularly viruses like these that insert their genomes into the, the, the genomes of their hosts, they actually leave behind traces of their own DNA. And oh, what wow. you can do is you can look at cellular hosts which have these leftovers of virus infections in their genomes that have just sat there for millions of years. And there's no very little selection that's been placed on these bits of DNA because they're not, they're not doing anything. They're not active. So these actually last much, much longer than the active viruses. So you can trace the evolutionary path of viruses much further back by looking at the sort of almost like genetic fossils of old viruses that are left behind in cells. That's pretty cool. So it's like, it, yeah, it's like genetic like breadcrumbs. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. It, but is that something that your work is going to be looking at, or are you more focused on which species are being affected by which viruses and, you know, what the impacts are to those specific species of kelp? I mean, is, is that is that more of the focus of your work? Well, one has to... They kind of are inseparable. Mm. So... Without looking back, you can't really make sense of of course of where these viruses are. You know, when when you look at what species of kelp they're in, you know there'll be a pattern of, of where these viruses are found and how they relate to each other and their hosts. And then looking back will help inform you as to how that came about. Right. You know, why does this virus infect this species but not this one? You know, shifting a bit, you brought up an interesting point earlier about how, how fast the viruses really um, evolve and, and change and compared yeah. to, you know, the regular cellular ones. So does that mean that if you wanted to do laboratory testing, uh, for example, you also mentioned how, you know, different temperatures might affect the rate of change or the type of virus yeah. or the species of kelp. So could you do laboratory testing to see maybe in a world that's been uh, kind of adversely affected by warmer ocean temperatures, would you see a certain type of virus proliferate a bit more than others? I mean, is that something that also might be a, an area to go down, an avenue to explore, so to speak? Well, certainly. Uh, familiar. Um, well, if you have a virus that's sensitive to the temperature and you have a oceans that are getting warmer from, you know, climate change or human impact, you might expect to see the viruses behaving 
in different ways depending on their species. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of problems with kelp that are invasive entering into areas where they previously were never found. For example, we have a, here at Plymouth, we have two species. We have a Japanese species of kelp called Undaria, which has been brought here by aquaculture, and another species called uh, Ocoloica, which has come up from the equator. So as the temperature becomes warmer, there are certain kelps which have moved away from the equator. At the same time, we see cold water kelps are retreating away from the equator, and some of them are predicted to have disappeared from in certain latitudes and be only found in sort of Norway and northern Scotland by sure. year 2050 so, to 2100. And I know there's a limit to where sunlight would reach, and that affects you know how fast the kelp would grow or, or even if they could survive at a certain depth. But would they also not maybe be going a bit deeper as well, be found a bit deeper? Certainly, but that would be limited by their ability to the, the pigments they have, their ability to use the light that's available to them as right. well. Right. And, and sorry, you also, you were saying the, the two invasive, invasive species. When you say they were brought over by aquaculture... Ungaria, which is also called Wakame, was brought over to um, northern France for onshore aquaculture, for food. They have, I think they've stopped it now. Once they realized it was able to survive outside of the aquaculture facilities, uh, you know, the ropes they were growing them on, right. quickly withdrew the Andera. I heard that there's another kelp called Macrocystis, which is the biggest kelp in the world, and it grows to you know, 50 meters long. It has a phenomenal growth rate, hmm. and it forms canopies on the surface, and apparently... At the same time, they brought in this Japanese kelp. They were actually growing some of this macrocystis in northern France as well, and it was doing quite well. But someone said, "Hold on a minute. Uh, I don't think we should be growing this here since the Japanese ones become invasive. Let's not grow the other one here." <laughs> so you can only imagine what that would have done if it had been allowed to be aquacultured in France. <laughs> a 50-meter kelp? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, it would just do, it would just shit everything and destroy <laughs> the ecosystem. <laughs> Talk about competition for light. Um, yeah. Now, kelp are... Light monopoly. <laughs> can you talk a little bit about the ecological importance of kelp? I mean... They're they're infamous, at least in the marine world, for how fast they grow. But you know they they do provide their own sort of uh, their you know you have kelp forests. That's an ecosystem. Yeah, in in cold water areas, sort of the northern hemisphere, they line all the coasts, and they do they form these um, forests. And you have the at the bottom you have this sort of root like hold fast. And in the middle, you have the stem and the blade, which is a big leaf at the top. So there's this diversity of, of habitats the kelp provides. And, you know, in areas where you have kelp, they provide uh, nursery grounds for fisheries and crustaceans, and they alter the waves. They change the way the um, currents move because they absorb the energy of wave movement, and they can benefit areas where there's 
and reduce they can reduce the erosion of beaches that are nearby. Hmm. So they're structurally they're very very important for just the chemical and physical movement of the oceans and then supporting biodiversity. So so that's actually a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up because that's something that they you know we're, I I think it's been fairly. Uh, maybe not understudied, but it hasn't been known as much um, that you have these coastal ecosystems like kelp, like you're mentioning right now, like mangroves that have this kind of coastal defense. Um, you know, you were just mentioning how kelp can slow down wave impact um, and tidal force, just like mangroves can, you know, take pretty, pretty brutal beatings, um, but also shield from, you know, further, further, uh, I guess, wave impacts into shore, um, and other environmental, that can, environmental impacts that can come from that. So that's an important thing that, that gives them, um, more of an importance when it comes to conservation, at least I, I would say, I don't know if you'd agree with that or not. Uh, there's also, there's recent evidence now suggesting that kelp actually influence the weather and they do this by... I'm sorry, did you just say kelp influence the weather? Yeah. All right, please continue. I'm interested. So they they absorb iodine from seawater, which they use as a they use it as an antioxidant, which is actually unique to kelp. And then they release it. Well, once they've used the iodine, they release it as a iodine oxides and carbonates, which then enter the atmosphere. And they've shown that these molecules act as sort of seeds for clouds. They're called cloud condensation nuclei. Huh. There's a similar there's a similar chemical from um, microalgae called DMS, which behaves in a similar way. And there's, there's studies showing that where you have iodine and iodine in the atmosphere, it can induce massive cloud formation events and a major source of iodine into the environment are the kelps. So that that's interesting. I'd be very curious to know because the Pacific coast, California to kind of Washington, they have very different weather patterns and, and climate patterns. You know, you have California, uh, Southern California, which is really kind of dry um, and is currently in a fairly big drought. But then, you know, you start going up north the, the West Coast and you get to Oregon and Washington and it's cloud city and foggy all the time and, you know, lots of condensation. Um, I've actually never been, but this is all this is all from the legends and the stories that people tell who have been to the West Coast. Um, and, and so it'd be interesting to know what the what the real role of kelp is in relation to those weather and climate patterns uh, because they're varying things but I'm pretty sure I know for you know pretty positive that kelp forests are pretty prominent on California's coast um, and you know I would assume since they are a cold water species or many of them are cold water species that they work their way up the coast so it'd be, that's an interesting thing I'd like to look into that more all right so so let's let's summarize it basically Dean I want you to tell me Pretend this is your viva. No, don't. Don't actually do that. I don't, I don't want you to be nervous or anything. This isn't, this isn't my viva. <laughs> this is your... I'm going to send this to your um, to your reviewers when you're finishing your PhD. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but no, let's... And they'll be like, uh, 
No, we're taking it back. <laughs> and we're taking the master's degree back, too. <laughs> uh, we changed our mind. All of your belongings. <laughs> Can you just summarize from what we've all, what, what we've just talked about? Why are kelp important? Why should people care about kelp, Dean, as an ambassador for the kelp species? All of them. So we've got the, you know, they are the foundation of ecosystems. They, they, they help provide fish to eat and crustaceans and habitats for all the other uh, species that live in them. They're also good for tourism. They're very attractive to divers. Oh, God, I can't think of anything worse than diving in a kelp forest. Oh, what? Well, being amazing. No, it just terrifies me. You won't be able to see anything. All I can just... It's just dark and... Okay, I, I guess they're not attractive to divers. I well, that's a good thing. Maybe maybe just to this diver, but you seem to be fairly excited about the, the prospect of diving in a kelp forest. Mm. Have you done it before? Sure. Have you, have you been diving in a kelp forest? Nope. Not, a prop, not like a, you know, one that goes from the seafloor to the surface. <laughs> like a giant one. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> All right, sorry, I cut, I cut uh, you off again. We, around the world, we harvest and farm kelp, and we extract a range of chemicals which we use to produce food and industrial processes. The, the most important one is the alginates, which are useful because they allow you to mix fat and water you know, you, you can mix a hydrophobic thing with a hydrophilic chemical. So they're useful for like emulsifying and producing things like paint, asphalt, dairy products. Wow, kelp's really used for, for that many products? That range? Yeah, there's a huge range of stuff we use alginates in. Hmm. And kelp are sort of major source of them. Hmm. Interestingly, we don't, I don't think we have a backup. <laughs> so if, Kelp ecosystems go, you know, down the toilet. I don't think there's like a backup alginate supply. Wow. Well, maybe bacteria, but there's no like set up, you know, plant to make it from bacteria. Uh, so, yeah, every day you probably consume something that's got kelp in it. Uh, are kelp so fairly easy to culture? I, I was asking if kelp are easy to culture in a lab. If you were going to try and grow them, I know we we had a uh, a peer of ours in our master's program um, who was doing that and experienced some troubles. Sorry, Rebecca. Um, well, they are they're attractive as a crop because they don't need land, they don't need much fresh water apart from when you need to wash them when you harvest them. They don't need fertilizer or pesticide, mm. and they grow very very rapidly. And it makes them quite attractive as a, a biofuel, a potential source for renewable biofuels. Mm. And there's actually a lot of um, money that's gone into this recently, particularly in Europe, where we have loads of um, kelp growing on our shores that we just don't use. So they're now doing a lot of research into creating uh, domestic strains of kelp that will grow quickly and provide a high yield of biofuel. The biofuel they produce is, um, you can produce methanol or methane from them using um, microbes to ferment the carbohydrates in the kelp. Oh, cool. That's very cool. That is cool. Huh. Um, 
there's also if you just Google if you just Google Scholar um, Kelp Health, there are paper after paper after paper detailing a chemical found in kelp such as uh, fucoidins or laminarins, which are just these weird uh, complex sugars and proteins found in kelps, which have a range of potential medicine uses. Anti-tumor, anti-can, you know, anti-diabetes, all these things. Are you saying kelp are a superfood? I'm saying that they. Well, I hate that phrase. First of all, superfood. I'm saying that there's a there's this potential wealth of new medicines that we could extract from them, but and this could be a good podcast episode, but um. It's the same. It's the same as true for a lot of marine organisms. We find these amazing, you know, these potential new drugs in organisms, and we we just kind of we test them on mice, maybe maybe some human cell cultures, and then they just sort of sit in development hell, and they can't get over that large amount of funding needed to get them to human trials and get them into mainstream medicine. Hmm. So there's a lot of potential there for. Um, future treatment of diseases, perhaps, and even just as a food in themselves, I mean, a small amount of kelp will provide um, a lot of the minerals that you need to be healthy. A little bit of protein, there's conflicting evidence about what vitamins are there. Don't go crazy because there's a lot of iodine in kelp, so you cannot eat like a ball of it. (laughs) I, I will say anecdotally, Dean, I remember when you told me that you could make kelp chips by just finding foraging for kelp on the beach washing it in fresh water and then either sun drying it we baked them um yeah i i, I went a bit gung-ho i was really glad you told me to slow down <laughs> before i i had an overload of iodine uh, i i i put some salt and pepper on them i put a little bit of old bay seasoning on them they were you wash you wash the salt off and then added more salt <laughs> Well, yeah. <laughs> and then, people love otters, you know? People um, love urchins, too. People love otters. I guess people love urchins. No, they don't. They, they do um, love otters, you're right. The otters eat urchins. The urchins, the urchins eat, eat kelp. kelp. So That's right. you have no kelp, you have no otters. There you go. Circle of life right there. There you go. <laughs> now, I won't go into how terrible and horrible and pathological otters are because they are horrible creatures i mean they're really they are the most murderous evil things you could ever imagine and they get away with it because they look cute but they're really uh, you read up on i'm gonna maybe i'll do an episode just about how terrible otters are just so i can ruin it for everybody um it's it's really it's something i'm passionate about anyway (laughs) um but I would like to have you back, if that's all right, and we can do another podcast uh, episode about further diving into the very fascinating world of kelp. Now, I want to ask you one more thing, which is going to be about a, a, a hobby that's turned into a useful uh, tool for you. For those of you at home that don't know, Dean is a fantastic artist. He's a very good drawer. He's, he's being modest right now, but he's a very good drawer. Um, and I've seen his work. I've seen it. He's drawn me nude. Um, and <laughs> my question is... Like one of my French girls. <laughs> whoa. Hmm? 
Why why do I have to be a French girl? And it, Titanic. <laughs> Titanic reference. Kate Winslet, was she French in that film? Yeah. Oh no, he the guy, the character Leonardo DiCaprio plays has this book of all these paintings of French girls. Oh, okay. I, I'm going to be honest. I saw it once on a plane when it first came out, and since I have no interest. It's just, you know, Jack fits on that board. It's ridiculous. Um, but anyway, so can you maybe... I'm, I'm probing you, but can you speak a little bit about where your talent for drawing has taken you when it comes to science and the lost art of scientific drawing? So, I did... I've just always been interested in it, but it's been, you know, for hundreds of years, that's what scientists really, that's what they did first. They they drew what they saw. Um, some of them are brilliant, some of them are uh, hilarious. You, you have, like, you have Haeckel, who drew all the embryos, and he drew all these amazing symmetrical arrangements of every group of organism you could think of. Absolutely <laughs> amazing. And then there's these other people who've drawn, you know, they've seen something they didn't quite recognize, you know, back in the Victorian times, and they've, you know, they've come back and drawn this massive lizard with smoke coming out of its head. <laughs> you know, that's how they drew a whale. You know, it's it's phenomenal, hilarious. But um, do you think that's the reason for legends of dragons and sea monsters and stuff like that? Oh, for sure. People misinterpret what they see. Hmm. You know, they only know they only know fish and lizards and mammals, and if it doesn't fit into those categories, they try and make it fit. So they create a lizard or you know dragon. That's where that would come from, probably. Fair enough. But you know, taking photos and you know doing sophisticated genetics and everything—it's all well and good, but you can get much of a, you can get your eye in much better if you're drawing something. And you can sort of manipulate them and show every angle of the species and you know, how it's put together. And you'll just understand it much better, I think. Well, so, I mean... Yeah, you, I'll, you, I'll, I'll hopefully I'll do some um, illustrations of, of kelp species. But what's interesting is we kind of... We group things together and we sort of, you know, dust off our hands and say, ah, that's done, you know, that's that species. Yeah. There's actually a lot of cryptic species. So you have this one species that's actually multiple species, but nobody realizes because they physically have very subtle differences between them. Hmm. Well, you, 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 you have a great example that you told me about the other day about my, my own field of interest of elasmobranchs, about sharks in particular. Um, when it came yeah, to scientific guess, drawings, why don't you, can you tell people about that? Yeah, I give a sh uh, shout out to uh, Mark Dando, who, who ran a scientific illustration course, which I did uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, he's done amazing work on particularly elasmobranchs. He's drawn all amazing illustrations for all kinds of textbooks and journals. And um, there's a species of shark, I can't remember what it's called, but it's a big brown shark with green eyes. <laughs> so it looks really, really distinct. Is it and small? And there's no other sharks that look quite like it. Basically, it had been in books for years, and it was this species 
but this uh, Mordando actually, he'd been drawing it again for a, a new book, and he noticed that different specimens he had weren't the same. They had different shaped fins and different placement of the fins and different markings, but very slight differences. But if you show them side by side, the drawings he did, it, it becomes obvious that there's two different sharks within this species. And then they followed that up with um, genetic testing and confirmed that it was there were multiple species within this. Hmm. So it's just an example of how, you know, if we abandon the old art of scientific illustration, we become a bit more blind, I think. I, I can definitely understand that point, that unless you're really focusing and, and looking from one to another, you're there. there could be potential for a lot of mistaken... Uh, species to go unnoticed and underdiscovered, undiscovered. Um, so yeah, that's very, very fascinating. Very good point. All right, Dean. Well, um, yeah, yeah. Sorry, go on. And for, yeah. What were you gonna say? Uh, I was gonna say, and I can only imagine how many hidden species are in um, seaweeds. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. That that's. I'm gonna leave that one up to you. You you have the sole task of genetically testing each and every seaweed in the world. Go. <laughs> Draw them all. Draw them all now. Um, <laughs> while we're on the topic, and uh, you know, you can comment or not comment, but uh, you mentioned uh, briefly about the about Europe. As someone that's a member of the UK, how do you feel about the referendum? The reason I bring it up is, as far as I understand, a lot of scientific funding that comes from the EU will be cut off. Well, I mean, I'm not planning to live in the UK <laughs> for long, so... Plus, I, I can just, if we leave the EU, I could just get an Irish passport and remain as a European... Whoa, 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 whoa. You're Irish? <laughs> All right. I don't know. I mean, I guess we'll, we'll lose science funding. I don't think it will happen anyway. Well. I mean, Scotland didn't even leave the UK. You know, you say that, but I come from a place where an egotistical, horrible human being is currently the front runner for one of the parties to become president of the United States of America. And all his other contenders are also the worst candidates possible. I mean, literally, yeah. that's part of the reason why he's plus, so popular. Plus he's... is that Donald Trump guy. No, it's Donald Trump, actually. <laughs> um, we're making Donald I mean, Trump again. Yeah. yeah I mean, I mean, he's just a figurehead, anyway. He, 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 he's, uh, a, he's a figurehead with a lot more damage that he can inflict. I'm not a poli-sci major, or really have any authority to speak on political topics, though I brought it up, yeah, so... <laughs> but yeah. God, I, I really, I fear, I fear for the world. But that's why, you know, hopefully we'll get to Mars soon. We can just mess Mars up more. We can plant him right there. Yeah. Rule over Mars. Yeah, yeah, Trump. You can be uh, you can be supreme overlord with vermin supreme of Mars. I would allow that. Just don't give him any terraforming kit. Really, I I, I think at some point at the very end, 
Donald Trump's going to reach up and pull off his mask, and underneath it'll be Sasha Baron <laughs> That would be amazing. You know what? It's funny. You... Be like, oh, thank God, it was just an amazing satirical ploy. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you mention that because Sasha Baron Cohen actually came on as Borat, I believe, onto a talk show in the States and specifically said that Donald Trump um, could never be a Sasha Baron Cohen character because he's too ridiculous, even for Sasha Baron Cohen. <laughs> he literally, like, mm. he said that, so, you know. Sounds like a false. Like, Actually, you're right. I haven't, I haven't seen the two of them together. <laughs> it could be the best self-promotion I've ever seen, to be fair. So, mm. All right, Dean. Well, listen, we are we are going into quite the uh, tangent, and mm. I'm going to wrap this thing up, wrap it up like a condom on a banana in fifth grade sexual <laughs> education class, and say thank you very, very, very much for joining us on today's episode. I love... Love talking to you. You're a great guy. Brilliant, brilliant scientist and fantastic drawer. And for those of you that don't know, Dean is actually a uh, genius when it comes to inventing new ways to throw a frisbee. So, <laughs> if you ever try and play frisbee with him, you will not be you will not be getting that frisbee tossed to you in a conventional way. <laughs> don't think I forgot. <laughs> um, but yes alright Dean well thanks again for coming on the show and definitely we're going to have you back if you'll allow it um, Dean hopefully live yes hopefully live hopefully we'll have you in person not on the phone uh, folks at home you should look out for Dean McEwen's work because he's going to be a prominent researcher look out for this name so there you go do you want to say goodbye to people at home Hi, how many are there? From the statistics I get, there's about four people listening on average once every month. So that's one person an episode. It's me. I'm, I'm the only one listening. So you, you, you can say goodbye to me. <laughs> goodbye, Dean. I'll never speak to you again. Bye, Dean. Alrighty, folks. We will see you next time. Toodaloo.